We are nearing the end of a long series that we're calling Follow. It's an eight-part series. Today is part seven. So for you math whizzes, you've already figured out that we'll wrap up next week. In this series, what we're talking about is, as I hope the name indicates, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Every one of us who has become a follower of Jesus by praying the prayer we know of as the sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe there's nothing I can do to earn my way, God, into your good graces. But Jesus, I know that you lived the perfect life and you died for my sins on the cross and then you rose from the dead having defeated sin and having defeated death. So I now turn from my sinful ways and give you my heart and I give you my life and I pledge to trust you and follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. Now, every one of us who has become a Jesus follower got there by a, a unique path. We all have our separate paths. We all have a different path. Like, for example, some of us or some of you grew up in church. And so for all intents and purposes, you always believed in Jesus and you always believed all the things you were taught about Jesus because you were taught about these things from an early age. And then others of you, this is the camp into which I fall, started following Jesus later on in life. And you came into the movement believing just the bare minimum about Jesus because you didn't really know who he was and you kind of grew from there. And as we've been saying since the beginning of this series, you know, you can be a follower of Jesus even before you believe everything that Jesus said, or even before you endeavor to live a life obeying every, what we'll call dictate, every piece of guidance from the scripture. Recall that, and we've talked about it a bit in this series, Many of Jesus' first century followers didn't believe everything about him until the very end. And they certainly didn't obey all the things that Jesus taught until then either. All this to say that we are all in different places in our respective faith walks. And we're all continuously working on and understanding what it means to follow Jesus. Now, when you hear the phrase, follow Jesus, there is a implied assumption that we should talk about. And that assumption is that if Jesus is someone to be followed, he must be a leader worth following. Doesn't that make sense? It's not too big a leap there. But when we think about Jesus, we don't typically think about him in terms of leadership, do we? Like we typically talk about Jesus as if he's just a religious figure. And when we think of religious figures, we don't typically think of great leaders, oftentimes, because great leaders are all about the future, doing things for the future in the future, and religion seems to be all about the past. Leadership is about changing things, and religion, sadly, is about not changing anything. And as such, church culture is usually pretty antithetical to leadership culture. Now, I want you to know that by being here today at Hammock Street Church, you are helping to change that. Hammock Street Church is a part of the North Point Community Church's Irresistible Church Network. That's Andy Stanley's movement in Atlanta that we are a part of. And by being a part 
of the Irresistible Church Network, Hammock Street Church allows us to be a part of a worldwide movement to change the way people think about church. We like to say we're a church for people who don't like church. And that's an extraordinary thing. And it's an extraordinary thing that we're able to do because Jesus was an extraordinary leader. You see, Jesus did not come to earth to be a religious figure. That's not why he came. Jesus came to earth to draw a people to himself and to lead them through extraordinary change. Unfortunately, the picture the world has given us about Jesus doesn't convince us that Jesus was all that leadership-oriented. Think about it. In the movies that depict Jesus, they kind of show him almost to be feeble and weak. I mean, his disciples are always helping him in and out of the boat, you know, and they're paying him all sorts of deference, like, like he's dainty and delicate, even though he's a 30-year-old blue-collar worker. He's always depicted with sort of that long, hippie-like hair, you know, and he wears a robe that looks an awful lot like a dress or a skirt. I mean, we think about, we look at these things like, hmm, that's an interesting picture of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, I think, as the song goes. But common sense dictates that if he was some kind of weakling, there's no way that we'd not only be talking about him 2,000 years later, but that he'd be the object of worship for, as of today, 2.4 billion people worldwide and an almost unfathomable fathomable number of people who have gone before. So Jesus must have been a world-class leader, the likes of which people had never seen before and no one has seen since. Now, with all this in mind, Today, we're going to be looking at a passage where Jesus gives us his secret to great leadership. So if you're a Jesus follower, this leadership model that we're going to take a look at today that Jesus has commanded us to reflect as we lead is going to be important to us, so we need to understand it. You see, in three years, by leading in his way, Jesus developed countless followers and he served as the cornerstone for hundreds of thousands of branches, of locations all over the world. And think about how he did that. He did that without any social media. There was no social media marketing. There was no Instagram influencing. Peter wasn't standing there on the shores of Lake Gennesaret going, you know, with a fish or something like that. Like, he didn't have any of that. Now, that's a lot more than we're ever going to do. I mean, we're not going to have a movement like that. 2,000 years from now, people aren't going to be talking about any of us. They're really not. And if you thought they would, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. So let's pray, and then we can dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for bringing in people with open hearts and minds, people who want to get to know you better. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to join together as an ecclesia, as a group, as a community of people who love you and love each other. God, we thank you for this time. Allow us to understand and adopt your word to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at a conversation between Jesus and his followers where Jesus stopped them on their way to Jerusalem and spoke with them about how they were to lead if they would ever find themselves in a position of authority which, by the way, they all, except one of them, who we talked about last week, he didn't. But all but one would. Now, 
in this passage, Jesus was telling the disciples essentially that if you're going to be my followers, this is how I want you to exercise authority when you have authority. So with that, let's turn to Mark's gospel. So Mark is the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. So Mark was one of the gospel writers, remember the first four books of the gospels. But actually, Mark was not an apostle. Mark was not a direct disciple. He wasn't one of the twelve. Mark actually was somebody who was close with Peter. And we think that all of Mark's content in his gospel came from his conversations with Peter, and Peter was an eyewitness to everything. So that's kind of how we know, that's how Mark knows what what he knew. Now, in Mark chapter 10, and if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. I'll put the verses on the screen. I will be reading from the New International Version. You can use any version you like. You'll be able to keep up. But in Mark chapter 10, Jesus and his apostles were headed for Jerusalem. And and just as we looked at last week, Jesus was trying to explain to them that things were not going to continue to go as well as they had been going in the past. So we're going to pick up there. We'll be looking at Mark 10, verse 32. So here it is. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. Remember all the time we say up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits on a bit of a hill. So they're always climbing up to Jerusalem. So they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. All right. So then things start off with a reference to something that had just happened because the next words are and again. So that just means that something happened before and it's happening Again, Jesus did this before. So what did he do? And again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. So remember what's going on. Jesus is drawing these big crowds. The disciples are really digging the fact that, wow, this guy's popular. And if we hang around with him, we're going to be popular too. And this is great. And we've really made a good choice here. So he's continuing to try to explain to his apostles that things aren't going to go well for a while. And in fact, they're going to start going badly right here. And then he took him aside and he told him what was about to happen. So we go to verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, that's the term that Jesus used for himself. It comes from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. All right, so what's going to happen? the Jewish leaders were going to determine that Jesus had to die and then they were going to hand him over to the Romans to execute the punishment, to execute Jesus. Why would they do that? Well, Jesus continues. They, that's the Romans, will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and three days later, he will rise. All right, so they're heading to Jerusalem where things were about to very quickly go south. But Jesus told them he wasn't going to stay dead. So they should all be prepared for everything. And then Mark shared with us the very next thing that they said. Okay, so remember what he just said. He just said, things are about to go bad. I'm about to be killed. You got that? Ready? Here's what they said next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I want to pause there for a second. What did they just say? Seriously, he just said, I'm about to be killed. And they said, yeah, boss, I hear you about all that spitting and flogging and dying that you're going to have to endure. And yeah, that really, really stinks for you. But can you do us a favor? I mean, that's what they said. 
Jesus had just shared all this stuff. It's about to happen to him. I mean, really horrible stuff. And if you've seen some of the cinematic depictions, you know how bad it is. And all they could think about is, yeah, but what about us? So Jesus asked them what they wanted. He says, what do you guys want? So now we go to verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So in other words, hey, boss, after all that spitting and flogging and dying stuff is over with, you're going to be in charge, right? So when you're the king, can we be your left and right hand guys? I mean, don't worry. We won't tell the other fellas, you know, that you like us the best. I mean, this is what they're doing. I'm going to be brutally murdered. And they're like, yeah, 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 enough of that. But what about us? Like, do we, do we get a job in the new administration? Now, it's not written in there, but we can certainly safely imagine Jesus was not pleased with their attitudes. He just poured his heart out to them. He just informed them of this horror show he's about to endure. And it seems like they weren't even listening. And then it gets worse. When the other 10 heard about this, all right, so remember, we were just talking to two of the disciples, James and John, and they were talking to Jesus secretly. But then the other 10 disciples heard about this and they became indignant with James and John. Now, they were not indignant like, how could you be so insensitive to our Lord and Savior Jesus? That is not how they were indignant, okay? They were indignant like, hey, wait a minute. If they get to sit on your right and left hand, where do we get to sit? I mean, that's what they're indignant about. What was going to happen to them, not what's going to happen to Jesus. And it's kind of at that moment that Jesus realizes once again, the boys had not been paying very much attention. So he stopped everyone before they got to Jerusalem, and he went over it one more time. This was the moment when Jesus spelled out for them what leadership is all about in the kingdom of God. And this is the way that he would lead. And then Jesus told them, and he's telling us, when you're the leader, here's how you do it. If you're going to be my follower, you have to exercise authority and power like this. All right, so now he's going to tell us how to exercise authority and power as a Jesus follower. Jesus called them together, verse 42, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their high officials exercise authority over them. So he's saying, you know how those guys do it? You know how those guys lead? And, and here it's interesting. Mark uses two separate Greek terms that basically mean the same thing to describe the typical leadership phenomenon of a leader using his or her power to push people around. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you know how typically when you see a Gentile leader, you see them kind of bossing people around, lording their authority over the people who are under them. How when you see a Gentile official who has authority, they kind of leverage their authority for what's best for them. And everybody who's under their authority is there to serve them. And the disciples were probably thinking, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly why we want to be in charge. Like, what a great thing, right? I get to push people around. I get to be in charge of people. Well, th this is awesome. We don't want to be lorded over. We want to be the ones lording over others. Yeah, that's exactly. That's why we want to sit on your left hand and on your right hand. So we can have the power over people, over the people that we have authority over. Okay? Now, I'm guessing that Jesus waited a beat, kind of taking that all in, thought about it for a second, and then he said, 
Not so with you. Yeah, 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 you got it. That's how it works with them. That's not the way it's going to work with you. And then Jesus, in his characteristic way, turned everything upside down, and he explained it this way. He said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you... Now, by the way, to become great in this context simply means whoever wants to become a leader, whoever wants to become a ruler, or whoever wants to exercise authority. So whoever wants to be a leader among you, Jesus is essentially saying, do you want to be great? And they essentially responded, yeah, we want to be great. And then Jesus asked, you, you mean you want to be the boss? And they're like, yeah, we want to be the boss. And Jesus asked, would you be, like to be responsible for all the big things? And, and they responded, absolutely. And so Jesus said, okay, it's good that you want to be great. But if you're doing this with and for me, you're going to need to be great in the way that I am great. And here's what that looks like. Verse 43, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And they looked up and they said, wait, what? What, what, what are you saying, Jesus? I mean, this was most certainly not what the disciples had in mind. Jesus had just taken everything they knew, everything that they were expecting about authority and leadership and ruling over others, and he just flipped it upside down. To be great, you have to be a servant. To be first, you have to be a slave. Now, when you hear something like that and then think about it in the context of where you work, I'm sure there are some of you here who think, you can't possibly expect us to do that. Like, that is not going to happen. I, I once had a law partner who said something like that to me. He said, Russell, listen, that God stuff probably works in your church, and that's all well and good, but this ain't church. This is the real world, and you can't beat all that Christian-y kind and loving here. That, by the way, that was before I worked at a church. I just want you to make that clear for those of you who don't know me. <laughs> well, today I want everyone to know that if you're going to be a Jesus follower, you need to understand that being a Jesus follower is not just a weekend gig. It's not just a part-time hobby. It is a full-time, 24-7 commitment. Don't leave the room yet. See, the Jesus follower, you don't just follow Jesus on Sunday. You don't just follow Jesus when you're trying to discipline your kids. You don't just follow Jesus when you're trying to get your spouse to agree with you. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, you need to be a Jesus follower everywhere all the time. And if you're a leader, you need to lead like Jesus. And as such, instead of lording over the people you supervise, you need to learn to serve. Now, please understand, by saying this, Jesus was not teaching us to be passive or unproductive. Don't, don't misunderstand that. He was saying that when we have authority, we're to leverage that authority for the sake of those under our authority, whether it's at home or in the marketplace or in the community or in the business world. And the truth is, if you've ever seen this done, you know that it creates a much better atmosphere and a much stronger corporate culture, even though it doesn't feel like it should or doesn't seem like it would. Because if you believe that 
wherever you work, you're only working there for yourself, it follows that you're only going to be on the lookout for whom? Yourself. You're going to be the only person you care about. In that case, it's all about your reputation, your career, your advancement. And if you work for somebody who has that perspective on leadership and authority, then you know you have to watch your own back because no one else is going to watch your back. But imagine an environment where you can be for the people who report to you. This is what Jesus wants you to create wherever you go, to be for the people who are, let's say, under you, who report to you, who have to submit to your authority. Wherever you go, when you exercise authority, whenever you exercise any kind of leadership, Jesus wants you to do it in a specific way. Jesus wants you to do it in such a way that the people who report to you or respond to you have confidence in you as their leader. They have the confidence that you are there for them not just for yourself. Now, if you've ever experienced this kind of leadership or this kind of, of corporate training or anything like that, this might sound familiar to you. It is, it is taught somewhat. This notion nowadays gets a lot of play in the corporate world because over the years, many business gurus have kind of figured this out and they've read the Bible and they've sort of repackaged Jesus's leadership style to sell on their own. Just a few examples. In the 1990s, a guy by the name of Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He rediscovered this stuff. He did give credit to Jesus. Stephen Covey was. He's passed away. But he was a very devout Mormon, and he gave credit to Jesus for the leadership, so good for him. In the early 2000s, there were more books, Good to Great by Jim Collins. He did the same thing. In the 2010s, John Wooden and Jocko Willink came along, and they did the same thing. They're still all talking about the same leadership principle. Every one of these guys found that the distinguishing characteristic of every great company that is doing great things is led by a humble servant leader. They, they all found that a humble servant leader is so compelling that it draws people in his or her direction, just as Jesus said 2,000 years ago. If you want to make progress, if you want to create a culture and an environment where people love to do what they do, then the more authority you have, the more responsibility you have for those who are under your authority, if you're going to be a great leader, you're going to have to lead like me, Jesus said. And then if you're going to lead like me, that means you're going to be leading with the benefit of the people you're leading in mind. Now, throughout this series and many times in the past, we've noted that if you follow Jesus, your life will be better and you'll be better at life. You've heard me say that before. This is that example. This is the example of that phenomenon to a T. If you've ever worked for somebody or you've ever worked in a company where the person that you work for knew that and had his employees or her employees' best interests in mind, you know what a powerful thing that can be, what a replenishing thing that can be to work in that kind of environment. You don't come home drained. You come home encouraged. You come home energized. And if you've ever worked for somebody who made everything all about themselves, you know, you know that every single employee in that place is looking for a job. That's just simply the way it was. I've worked in so many atmospheres, again, not church. So many law firms where everybody had a resume out. Everybody was looking. 
See, in places like that, the only reason anybody stays is because they just haven't gotten a better job yet or because they can't afford to go anywhere. So if you're a Jesus follower, be advised. If you're somebody who carries personal responsibility for others, your Savior has called you to lead in such a way that people know that you are there for them. They are not there for you. Years ago, I learned a lesson in servant leadership that's stayed with me ever since. It's been 20 plus years. It really changed my life. It changed the way I look at things. And I I believe it changed the lives of everyone who's worked with me and for me. At least I'd like to think that. But before I tell you about that lesson, I want to tell you a little bit about how I arrived at that place and how I was how I arrived at that place and I was receptive to hear that lesson. Because a lot of times people don't believe this stuff because it seems countercultural. But I graduated law school, I was 24 years old. So I don't know if you all remember when you were 24, some of you are under, but for those of you who are over, like, I, man, I was a dope when I was 24 years. Not that I'm not now, but certainly worse back then. And I immediately went to work at this big law firm, large national law firm, and got paid far more than I was worth for sure. In the years leading up to that, law school taught me a few things, and it taught me about how law practice would work. And they said to me that the first seven or ten years, seven to ten years of the practice of law, you have to be willing to do anything and everything that you're asked to do by a senior lawyer, by a senior associate, by a partner, by a corporate leader, whatever. Now, by the way, this was back in the days before anyone cared about the feelings or the opinions or the sensibilities of young people. And certainly nobody cared about the feelings and sensibilities and all of that of young lawyers. Okay? Employers didn't worry about such things. They didn't even think about mental or emotional health of their employees. And there was absolutely no talk of any work-life balance. In fact, At one of the firms I worked at, whenever somebody would find themselves really busy and they gave them a big raise, they would joke around and say, ha-ha, got them now. That's the golden handcuffs. That's a, you ain't going anywhere because you need this job now that you bought that car and that house and you have the vacation house and the boat and a trip and all that stuff. By the way, back in those days, if you even hinted that you'd like a work-life balance, you could pretty much kiss any hope of future advancement goodbye. And if I had had any expectation of being treated like a professional once I'd become an attorney, well, I was immediately disabused of that notion on my first day of work. And this is a true story, as are all my stories. First day of work, one of the senior partners for whom I was working called me into his office. By the way, he didn't use the intercom. We used to have intercoms back then. Kids, back in the day, you know, intercoms, okay. This is how he he called me into his office. Russell, get in here. He's four offices away. About 10 feet though, all right? So I went into the office. Yes, sir. He hands me his laundry bag and he said, listen, go drop this off at, gave me the address to a dry cleaner. Okay. During the 18 months that I worked at that firm, I got to make his laundry runs. I got to drive him to the airport. I got to watch his house when he went away. I got to take his wife to doctor's appointments. And I got to drive him to business committee meetings at his synagogue. I was an associate in a law firm. Now, I have to admit that even though they were condescending and demeaning, they were at least somewhat nice about it. I mean, they said thank you and stuff. But I couldn't get out of that place fast enough. And when I moved on, imagine my disappointment when the next firm was even worse. 
and it was even worse. The leaders at the next firm were condescending and were horrible and demanding. And if my wife listens to this message, she's going to say, did you really want to say that? And I'm going to say, yes, I did. A, because I don't think they're listening, and B, I wish they'd hear it. But I have to tell you, to the person, every person at that firm was more horrible than the next. So I spent about 18 months there and moved on from there. Anyway, not too long after that, I finally met somebody who showed me a new example of leadership. That guy's name was Rich DeVos. Some of you might remember that name or know that name. Rich was the, I speak of in the past, he's passed away. He was the founder of the Amway Corporation. He was the owner of the Orlando Magic basketball team. Now, at the time, Rich was one of the wealthiest men in the world, a multi-billionaire, and he was close to our pastor, David Nicholas, and so he was a large donor to our seminary. So we, we had the opportunity to spend time with Rich from time to time, and one day we had a day, we got to spend the whole day with him, and he talked to us about leadership. And he shared with us a wealth of leadership tips that he gleaned over his many years in the marketplace. But there was one tip that he shared that just blew me away. He explained to us that even though he was the boss of thousands and thousands of people in all his various businesses, he always kept closely in mind the fact that his employees and his subordinates were all people who deserved respect and love and grace. See, Rich, you see, was a lifelong follower of Jesus. And he'd learned early on to lead as Jesus modeled, to lead as a servant. Now, Rich told us story after story about how he would travel to all the various locations of his business operations, to the factories, to the distribution centers, to the sourcing places, and he'd speak to his employees, all of them. He'd talk to everybody and anybody from the maintenance staff, from the cafeteria staff, all the way up to the executive suite, and he'd ask each one of the people the same question, what can I do to help you? Now, when you're a billionaire, people are always come up coming up to you and asking you for stuff. Can you for me? Can you for me? But this billionaire would go around and ask people, what can I do to help you? And this is one of the most powerful questions a leader can ask. If they want to take this idea of leveraging their authority for the sake of people under their authority, that's the question they must ask. And it's a question that I assure you, none of my superiors at any place I'd ever worked, ever asked, ever, ever. I remember sitting in the room across the table from this guy who is worth billions and billions of dollars and being just dumbstruck. And you guys know me well enough to know that I never stopped talking. But I stopped talking for a minute because what he was saying was so brilliant yet so simple. And I promised myself then and there that if I ever were in a position to lead something, a law firm, a department, an organization, or a church... I'd adopt the same practice. I'd lead not as I had been led during my early years as a lawyer by a series of petty tyrants, but rather I would lead as a servant and that I would always look to others and ask, what can I do to help? How can I leverage anything I can do to help you do what you can do? That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. And it's so simple that it's absolutely brilliant. And you know what? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Think about it. God, in some kind of cosmic way, which we all know the words, but we certainly don't know exactly how it worked, 
Look down upon our sin-filled, broken world and ask the question, what can I do to help? Because they can't fix themselves. What can I do to help? How do I loan what I have to address their need? Or as John wrote in John 3.16, which you've read and heard before, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What can I do to help? Now imagine if you were to implement this practice in your work context. It might just make some of your coworkers, whether they're your supervisors or your subordinates or your employees, it might make you need some smelling salts, right? Because they may go, what is happening? They'll be looking around. Are we getting fired today? I mean, wow. But that's what Jesus modeled for us. Here's another variation on the theme. As a leader, we should look for opportunities to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. See, Jesus did this all the time. Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't feed everybody. He didn't visit everybody. He didn't stop in every town, but he did for one what he wanted people to know he could do for everyone. This is another way to lead people. This is another way to loan yourself to them for them, instead of always expecting them to loan themselves to you for you. You might not be able to do everything for everybody, But you can do some things for some, and that can have a huge impact. It's another way for you to leverage who you are for someone else, to leverage your resources for others. So the bottom line is simply this. Jesus calls us to leverage our authority for the benefit of people under our authority. Now, this is a total game changer if you can figure this out. This is life-changing. This is what great leaders do, and it's what Jesus did, and it's what Jesus modeled for us. It's at the core of what we believe as Jesus followers. So if you're a Jesus follower, this is the standard to which you have been called. Now, I don't want you to think this is a leadership class because the message is more than a leadership class. Understanding this message is critical. Because if you're a Jesus follower who's responsible for anybody at work or has any responsibility over anyone anywhere, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're helping out somebody and you've given responsibility, if you're doing volunteer work, anyone, anywhere, that place needs to reflect the love of Jesus. That means that your enterprise, whatever it is, if it's your office, if it's your school, whatever it is, should be the most well-run, productive, flexible, efficient, safe, encouraging, and organized place in the world. People should be dying to want to work with and for people who follow Jesus because of this one idea alone. Because who wants to work for somebody who is all about, because who doesn't want to work for somebody who's all about them and not all about themselves. Not only that, people should want to hire Jesus followers, all of them. They should want to hire every Jesus follower they can get their hands on. And Christians should be known as the most honest, productive, hardworking, 
caring and responsible, reasonable people around, period. That's what we should be known as. We shouldn't be known as haters. We should be known as people filled with grace and people filled with love. Guys, if we could get this down, this would change our world. Imagine if everyone, believer and non-believer alike, wanted to work with and work for a Jesus follower because every Jesus follower was known for the way that they genuinely care about people. Jesus followers get the job done and they're diligent and professional to boot. What if that's what people knew about us? And if we, as the Christian community, could get this one thing right, it would be revolutionary for our culture. Imagine the influence that we would have to share with all of them the good news about our great God if we could ingratiate ourselves to them because of the love that Jesus reflected for us. That's the essence of who we are. That's the essence of what we believe. That whenever we have any element of authority, we are to leverage that authority for the good of the people under our authority because that's what God did for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an opportunity. You have a responsibility to leverage whatever authority God gives you in this life and do it in a way that brings praise and glory to God's name. Why? Because our names, our names are not worth living for. Your glory, my glory, it's not worth giving your life up for. It really isn't. But we have an opportunity. Nay, we have an obligation to lean all that we are into all that Jesus is. And you can do that in the marketplace. And you can do that at work. And you can do that with your career. And you can do that with your family. And you can do that with all the ambition that you have. And you can do that with all of your drive and all of your energy and all of your leadership skills. You can do it with all the things that God has given you. And you can do it in such a way that ultimately brings credit and glory to the name of our Savior. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, that's how you're going to do it. Not like them. Not so with you. You know how everybody else does it? Yeah, we know. Not so with you. You know how everybody else leverages their authority so it's all about them? Yeah, not so with you. And when you get this down, here's what, you, here's what we know. You'll be better off. And everybody that works with you and for you, they'll be better off too. And your company will be better off. And your office will be better off. And your practice will be better off. And your organization will be better off. And the marketplace will be better off. And everybody's lives will be better off if you follow Jesus. Now let's listen to how this conversation between Jesus and the apostles ended. We go to verse 45. Mark wrote, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, if you are a Jesus follower, and you think it's all about you, then you've rated yourself above Jesus. Do you think you're more important than Jesus? No? And what are you doing expecting people to serve you with no benefit and no thought of how it serves them? Jesus was saying, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done. Jesus said, I came to serve, and I want you to follow me. 
Follow me and figure out how to leverage your authority for the sake and the benefit of the people who are under your authority. And then you'll be better off and they'll be better off too. Everyone wins if you choose to follow me. So here's our final question. What does that look like in your world? You need to ask yourself, how can I loan me to you for you because you're always loaning you to me because I'm the boss? How can I begin to do for more ones, more people, what I wish I could do for everyone and in that way model and reflect what our Heavenly Father has done for each of us? How can I leverage my authority for the sake of those who are under my authority? That's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus calls us to do. And this is what great leaders do. So, what would this look like in your world? Because if you can figure this out, maybe, maybe we can be the generation that radically changes the perception of how the world sees us Christians simply by modeling Jesus' humility to those people around us. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to get this right. So please, Lord, give each of us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard, and please give us the courage to do it. Father, we're amazed to think that we can reflect this kind of humility in a marketplace that knows very little of you and would assume that something like this would never, ever work, but we can have faith that it does and it will. So, Father, we pray that we would be that generation, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.